Hey guys, we're really glad that all of you could join us. We have made it through the first 14 chapters of Acts. You're welcome to listen to them if you haven't yet. We're getting into Acts chapter 15 today. So let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. In the process of the gospel spreading, we have some issues on the way. This is normal. While in Antioch, some men came down to Antioch, down in the sense that Judea was of a higher elevation, and so they were going down. Um, and began to teach something dangerous. They began to teach that in order to be saved, Jesus was not enough. You had to have part of the old covenant as well, the circumcision. Circumcision was part of what made a Jewish person a Jew. Uh, if a Gentile wanted to be a Jew, they needed to be circumcised and follow the law. It was very important in their eyes as Jews to have an external show that they were part of God's people. They were mixing the old and the new, which made both useless. If you look at Luke 5, 36 to 39, uh, Jesus speaks on this. They believed that since salvation came through the Jews, Gentiles needed to become Jews first and then become Christians. But Paul and Barnabas disagreed to adding anything to salvation. It needed to be solely from Jesus. So after there was some division, the local churches sent some men, which included Paul and Barnabas, to Jerusalem. There, they would speak to the apostles and see what the decision was. Remember, scripture, scripture was not complete. If anything, it was still being made. So the church in Jerusalem that contained the apostles were the authority on the matter until scriptures were completed. They did not have all the details of this new covenant, like we do. Verses 3 through 5. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So we see that on their way, Paul and the group of men passed by Phoenicia and Samaria. While there, Paul told the brethren of what had happened on his first missionary journey. The response through the cities was joy. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church, and they reported everything that had happened on their journey to them as well. Some of the sect of the Pharisees stood and told them that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and needed to obey the law of Moses. Some look at the motivation of these men and believe, since they were Pharisees, that perhaps they still had some of their tendencies, the desire to control, some jealousy or fear of others. But let's assume they were sincere and simply did not know, since the scripture doesn't really give us anything indicating otherwise. They had a value of the word of God, and that is commendable. They felt the law is still needed to be obeyed as part of salvation. But we know, having all of the teaching of the Old and New Testament, that salvation is solely by Christ, with no attachments. Verses 6-9 through 
The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. After some back and forth, Peter got up. The Samaritans, we see that in Acts 8, and the Gentiles, Acts 10, had come to Christ in the early years of the church, through God's hand, through Christ, without the law, without circumcision. He recounted his experience with Cornelius, remember Acts 10. When Peter told the Gentiles the gospel, they received the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews did at Pentecost. God made no distinction between Jew or Gentile. If they needed something else for salvation, they would not have received the Holy Spirit. And he cleansed the heart of the Gentile, just like he did for the Jew. Now this is important. Jesus' sacrifice removed the wall that was there between Gentile and Jew. In the Old Covenant, they were to be different, a holy people. A part of a job of the priest was to maintain that wall. We see that in Leviticus 10.10. Salvation does not come by our works. It comes through Christ's work alone. Verses 10 and 11. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Peter asks the people that were there, why are you bothering to add to salvation? Notice how Peter spoke about both the Jews and Gentiles. He said, disciples. If they would add the law to salvation, they would be adding a burden that these disciples couldn't bear. The Jews themselves never obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus had completed the law, and so through his life, we are free from the burden of the law. We can and should obey the law to please our Lord, but it's not needed in order to earn salvation. Peter mentioned their salvation, that of the Jews, in an interesting light. Instead of saying, they're just saved, just like us, he said, we are saved like them. God's grace brings faith, not nationality, not family, not culture or tradition. Salvation is through Jesus alone. Verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas addressed the assembly, and they spoke of all the miracles that God had done through them in preaching to the Gentiles. These would have been a great argument, because Paul and Barnabas were not imposing the law on the believers, and yet God was showing his power through miracles and through them. God was validating their work among the Gentiles without the imposition of the law. Verses 13 and 14. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. This James was not the Apostle James, the James, the James that was beheaded by Herod right before Peter's miraculous escape from prison. This James was the half-brother of Jesus, the same person that wrote the book of James in the Bible. 
he is seemingly the head of the council in Jerusalem. So this James begins his speech with the reminder that God has spoken through Peter. James even referred to the Gentiles with the same name as the Jewish people, a people for his name. This meant that they were on equal grounds before God. The Jews were not higher than the Gentiles simply because of their nationality or any physical condition. Both the Jews and Gentiles would be God's called out ones, the church. Verses 15 to 18. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. James goes into the Old Testament to expand which is a wonderful, because we should not simply be convinced of anything unless there is backup in Scripture. James went to Amos 9.11-12, and there are some issues with the quote. James quotes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. This translation differed a little bit from the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text mentions Edom. While he does not he simply mentions mankind. And this is easily resolved because Edom and Adam are basically the same in Hebrew. And so the confusion is easy to understand. We need to be careful with the interpretation of this passage, which I think James was. If you read it, he does not mention that the prophecy was fulfilled, simply that they were in line with it. There are three views on how to translate this, and, and we'll try to view each one. Some translate this saying that the church was fulfilled the scripture, and so God is using the church to be his kingdom. And we'll learn about this and its definition in the end times. It's, it's a belief called amillennialism. Uh, there are some problems with this belief, including that God mentions an actual, literal, physical return in these verses. Jesus is not currently returned, as was prophesied, and when Christ does return, he'll sit on David's throne. Currently, he sits at the right hand of God, and the New Testament does not give an indication that he has already taken the throne of David, and we see that in Hebrews 1.3 and Matthew 25.31. The second and third view can be put into what is called the premillennialism camp, uh, which is basically the thought that Christ will come again physically before the beginning of the millennium. So it's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and this is still in the future. So the second view basically says the quoted verses are a chronology of events. First, there's the church age, which is after the Gentiles are saved. Then comes the return of Christ to Israel. Then establishing the Davidic kingdom. And then the turning of the Gentiles to God in the millennium. This view has some smaller issues than the first view. First, the mention of after this, which is number one in the list of events, in the verses is not actually in Amos. So the question is, is James referring back to after what was happening in Amos or what was happening in Acts? We don't know. The third view to us seems most possible and that James is simply stating that Gentiles will be saved in the time of the millennium under Jesus' reign and rebuilding of David's kingdom. Amos did not mention anything about circumcision in this calling. This would fit the purpose of bringing up this verse in the council, since they were meeting about this. 
If Gentiles are saved that way in the millennium, why would their current age be any different? It shouldn't. This would also keep the prophecy of Amos in its own context. There he was speaking of the tribulation or the judgment of God on earth. And you see that in Amos 9, verses 8 to 10. Other prophets mention salvation of the Gentiles too in the millennium. Look at Isaiah or Malachi. We know for sure Amos is speaking of the spiritual, physical restoration of the kingdom of God through the kingdom of David. This is speaking about the literal return of the God-man, the king, Jesus. He will restore the kingdom of David. Gentiles are included in this kingdom, and the circumcision and the law are not mentioned in conjunction with the Gentiles coming to God. There is simply a calling with the gospel of Christ, and glory to God that he would include Gentiles in his plan as well. Verses 19 to 21. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has, in every city, those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James came to the conclusion that the law should not be imposed on the Gentiles, but at the same time, he did not want the Gentiles to be offensive to the Jewish people, nor continue in their cultic pagan acts. James proposed, then, that the council write a letter to the Gentile churches. The letter would ask the churches to abstain from three things that were offensive to the Jews and were linked to pagan worship. Now, all three of these were commonly used in Gentile worship to their gods and in their temples and were offensive to the Jewish culture or people. The first one was food that is contaminated by idols is connected to 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where Paul argues that idols do not really exist as far as they're not real. And so we're free as Christians and under grace to do as we please, but not all things are profitable. In the same breath, Romans 14 calls Christians to be aware of weaker Christians and to change our actions to not cause them to stumble. All right, so the second one is fornication, and that's any sexual involvement before marriage. It's a moral sin, even if it is used in idol worship. So God shows us this in the law. It's a dishonor to the covenant of marriage, and so Christians are called to avoid fornication at all costs. I also believe this includes sex with anyone outside of your spouse. This includes adultery, pornography, etc., um, the third one is strangled meat and blood. Now, some believe that this was a ceremonial law and that this law has, has passed and we're done with it. We avoid eating blood when around weaker Christians, but ultimately it's okay to do. Others believe that this is a law that's still valid today since it was given before the law of Moses. It's given to Noah in Genesis 9 when God allows them to eat meat, but not the blood in it. I think you could go either way on this one, actually. So, how do we apply this to us? Personally, we do avoid blood because it's the sign of life. Blood has a deep meaning to us and of how we are saved. 
I don't find it offensive when another Christian has bloody meat for dinner. This is one of the places where you need to decide what you believe and treat it as a tertiary or a third or a lower level doctrine. In other words, it's it's not something that we should break fellowship with of other Christians about. Also, to clarify, once we become saved, our desire is to follow God and His Word. Works become a response from salvation, not a cause of salvation. So, as Christians, we act to glorify God and are sensitive to others so we don't defend them. I'm sorry, <laughs> so we don't offend them. Verses 22 to 29. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and uh, to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. The council sent letters to the Gentile churches through several leaders, including Barnabas and Paul, affirming all they spoke about the council, in the council. The church was willing to sit down and calmly discuss, and it came to a unified decision. The leaders accepted that the troublemakers were sent by them, but their teaching was not their instruction. They also relay their unified decision to the rest of the churches. Now, this is important. We also need to be willing to compromise for the sake of unity, on preferences, and on doctrines that are not important. We are called to work as one body for the sake of the gospel. Our unity is far more important than any preference we can have. So we base our core doctrines in the Bible with the church, serve each other, and in unison serve God. We will always be stronger together than separated. Verses 30 through 35. So, when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also, the word of the Lord. The group from Jerusalem went to Antioch and delivered the good news. The brothers of Antioch were very encouraged by the letter sent by the council and also by the message of Silas and Judas. Judas returned while Silas remained in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas continued their work of teaching and preaching the word of God in Antioch. 
verse is 36 to 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We see a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Please note that the Bible is full of disagreements and sin and all that type of stuff. The Bible's not, you know, a, a book where everybody is clean cut and everything is always good. There are disagreements. It happens. They were both ready to go back on the mission field, but both had a strong opinion on who to take. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, perhaps to give him another chance. Perhaps he thought John Mark had, had matured some, or perhaps it was simply because he was family. Remember, they were cousins. Paul, on the other hand, was against taking John Mark since he had abandoned them on their first journey. Possibly he thought he was too immature, uh, whatever you want to call it, but they were both probably right in their assessment of John Mark on their points of view. I like how one commentator put it. He said, Paul looked at people and asked, what can they do for God's work? While Barnabas looked at people and asked, what can God's work do for them? They disagreed so strongly that Barnabas left with John Mark and Paul left with Silas. Barnabas and John Mark left to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas went through the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia. <clears throat> Sorry, had a little trouble there. God still used their disagreement to have two groups of missionaries, and they both traveled through the known world while there was disagreement. Now, we know Paul still spoke of Barnabas in positive terms. And he, we see that in later letters. And we also see that Paul also spoke well of John Mark. We see that in Colossians 4.10. Silas, on the other hand, was a good choice from what we can see in Scripture. We already know he was part of the Jerusalem Council. He was a prophet, as mentioned in previous verses. And we see later that Silas was also a Roman citizen in Acts 16.37. And so this is important for the journey. And so here starts the second missionary journey into the Gentiles.